Well, very nice to meet you, and uh, let's get started off on the right foot. So my friend is coming with the right foot. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm going to. Uh, this is a little hash joint I've been nursing while oh, I was setting up. Okay. It, All right. It could be the reason why my regular webcam isn't working, but I'm gonna I'm gonna spark up right now. Ah, uh, you know, it's always something, man. No escape. Yes, sir. There's no escape. But you know, the the, the good really. Oh, oh, really outweighs the bad no matter what and if you think oh i shouldn't have smoked that doobie man i'm really messing up well there's more good in it than there is anything i i mean i found of course we yes, know you don't totally like it agree. so yeah i'm currently uh sampling all of the entries for the emerald cup for the next two weeks i'm an emerald cup flower judge so i've been uh having to take just like I've been smoking weed like 10 to 12 hours straight for judging. So if I'm a little slow or anything, oh. please forgive me in advance for that. I am oh, saturated wow. in THC right now. I'm going to slow myself up right now. That's crazy in California now, man. You don't have like a pipe or nothing? <laughs> I got you ready. You know, that's the lesson. Always come prepared. So yes, where sir. are you in California? Uh, that's what the... Santa Rosa, California. Santa Rosa, up north. I was yes, a uh, L.A. Yeah. boy my whole life. I don't care what you say. I lived in Venice for 10 years. I don't care what you say. I love that city. What is that? Me too. Me too. It's crazy, but it's such a huge vortex of energy. And if you, if you, if you find the right veins, you can really surf it to some amazing experiences, which... Uh, hopefully we get to talk about today. I mean, you really, you know that a lot yeah. better than I. Well, I lived my whole life there. Okay, well, that's enough for me. Otherwise, I'll be stupid. <laughs> so my name okay. is Matthew St. Germain. I'm a friend of Adam Crow's. And uh, you want to start with a, a quick intro of, of your history? Okay. Uh, I was born a lot, a lot of years ago in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and then I, uh, my family moved to the San Fernando Valley in California when I was 13 years old, and that's where I spent uh, my whole life up until about 15 years ago. So, uh, wow. I, I don't know what we're going to get into today, what kind of subjects we're going to talk about, but um, I'm going to follow your lead for a little while and, you know... We'll go okay. from there. Well, so I will, I will right, I'll set neighbor, the ground, so anyway, uh, like kind of the, my, my, oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my name is Patrick and, uh, I went in the sixties, I went by sunflower and, uh, the sixties were, uh, a story all into themselves. And, uh, like they say, if you, uh, were in the sixties and you remember it, then you didn't experience it. But boy, I got nothing but great, grandiose memories from the 60s. Those were some special times. And I get talking story with people and they say to me, well, wow, that's so cool. But what about me, man? I don't get to do any of that cool stuff. And I said, well, you know, maybe you did. Maybe you didn't along the way. It's not about that. But it, for me, it was the most amazing time of my life. 
You want to start with that? Awesome. You were you were able to be, you were, yes, sir. You were able to be uh, firsthand to a real renaissance of music and culture. Um, I found out about uh, Father Yod and Yahoo Thirteen and the Source Restaurant from some random pictures of a few of y'all on like a Rolls Royce in the in the Robin Hood boots and and just totally fierce long hair and uh, I found out in a time where there wasn't even an, any internet link and I had to really. I printed out these pictures and went to some of my kind of hippie elders in LA and and started to find out about Father Yod and Yahoa. I got Father Yod's book. I think it's called Tetragrammaton, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got uh, Tetragrammaton uh, and started reading it. And then in the last few years, a lot more information has come out. And then all of a sudden, Adam, um, you know, I listened to your guys' albums on YouTube, and I've just I've just been very into the entire story because from the outside, it's what a lot of people call a cult but it really seems like it operated with a lot of integrity and there was no real personal tragedy that I know of. And I'm just so interested to really flesh this out and get uh, a more human wider scope view of, of this phenomenon. Cause it was always very interesting to me. It's just so fortuitous oh, that you cool. happen to live next to Adam. So, <laughs> so we, uh, so then we want to talk predominantly about the days in the source family for, for this uh, segment. Correct. Well, let's go. Let's start with where were you a couple like five years before the source? Let's start there. Okay, I uh, I bought my first bass guitar in 1962. I was working for a company called Rocketdyne, uh, making building rocket engines on the J2 motor, the first motor that went into space. So I worked there for several years, and uh, uh, there was a band playing in one of the local clubs, and I used to go in, and man, this bass player was the most thumping thing I ever heard in my life. So I went out and I bought a bass, and a couple of months later, I was playing in a band in the club across the street from those guys. So uh, I played there for a little while, and one one night, uh, these people came in from Hollywood, and they came up to me after the set, and they said, uh, you really you really play bass very well. I said, would you be interested in coming joining our band? We're out of Hollywood. And I said, Hollywood, hmm, okay. So two days later, I threw everything I owned into my 1960 Chevrolet Impala, and I drove to Hollywood. Nice. And from there, I got, uh, it, I had the great fortune of hooking up with um, uh, a band in Hollywood that was very successful. We were uh, the opening act for everybody in the world Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin at the Whiskey, um, The Doors, uh, every yes. single band in the world. We were on the same bill with and we played with. And a lot of them didn't even have their first hit record yet. And so they were, uh, they were really upset when we would get uh, uh, the, the better billing. We would get the headlining and when they would have to open for us, you know. So that was quite amazing. Okay. Uh, Buffalo Springfield opened for us and all that kind of stuff. So that went on for about wow. five years. And, uh, you know, after five years band? on the road, uh, that band was called The Fields, so- F-I-E-L-D-S. Fields? Okay, thank Fields. you. Awesome. And uh, okay, we uh, there's just so many stories about them, but we want to get through that period. But that was uh, after five years on the road. You know, there were so many drugs. I mean, uh, one one day uh, a guy comes into the room, the lead singer from the band came into the, to the room and he had this purple vial of liquid. 
uh, he had two of them. And there was, it was a three and a half gram vial, a sizable one. He goes, here, he says, one for you and one for me. And he took the top off of his and swallowed it down. And so I took the top off of mine and swallowed it down because I didn't know what it was. And there was enough in there for probably 2,500 sugar cubes because you're supposed to put one drop on a sugar oh cube. God. And that was your like, that was a peaking yeah. hit. Yes, sir. I take the whole the whole bottle. Wow. And I wound up that night. We uh, took off, uh, and somebody was driving us, and we took off. And I mean, a, a total hallucination. I wound up at Frank Zappa's house up in Laurel Canyon, and the Mothers of Invention were playing, no and there was a big way. party going on. And oh my! Wow. So, so these uh, the, these two girls took one look at me, and I mean, people were leading me around. It was all, everything was solid paisley, and the floor was jump moving, and I, I didn't, you know, it was my first trip, man. Yes. And they said, all right, come with us. We're going to take oh care of you. Oh, my God. So they took care of me for, they took care of me for two and a half days, led me around until I finally started wow, to come down. And that was my first experience with LSD. Yeah. So after that, I probably took it maybe 500 times. And I was on the road for five okay. years with this, uh, with the musical adventure out of Hollywood. And uh, I was very burnt out by then, extremely burnt out. I took acid probably 500 times. And uh, yeah. I decided I was going to quit the band. And there was this wonderful yogi who had just come to town named Yogi Bhajan. And I, I think everybody's pretty, heard, pretty yeah. much heard of Yogi Bhajan at one point or another. Well, he was only in town about two yep. weeks at that time, and somebody had given him a place to have an ashram, and so he was giving classes. So I went to class there. Uh, to you know, A friend of mine was at my house. He says, come on, I want to take you and meet this yogi. And so we went to class, and I just fell in love with it. And my very first night there, I sat right behind this fellow who had just started going to see Yogi Bhajan also, and his name was Jim Baker. And uh, I took an immediately, uh, we yep. took a, an affinity with each other. And he was just about ready to open the Source restaurant on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood at the time, because that's where all this was going on in Hollywood. Yes, sir. And so uh, yes, sir. I went and uh, lived in my van out behind the Source restaurant and uh, quit the band, of course. And he and I finished the Source restaurant and got it opened up. And so that's when all wow. it all kind of started and, and we were we were both going uh, to regular classes uh, to see the yogi and uh you know yogis uh, they make you a lot of promises they'll promise you anything they just put some money in the donation jar or in the kitty and you know they'll promise you anything yes, so sir. this went on for a while promise promise yes. you're gonna see god you're gonna see the light you're gonna this was a very powerful yoga so we don't want to get too far off into that story but uh, at some point, uh, Jim it said, look, I, I don't agree yes. with this anymore. Oh, sorry. Kundalini yoga. And I had the Kundalini experience, which uh, that's another story if you want to hear it. But uh, oh, yes, so please. I, um, uh, I, I myself and friends. Oh, OK. So oh, yes, the uh, Kundalini we have a little bit of a lag is all. Oh, OK. The Kundalini experience is a. Uh, is a most incredible spiritual enlightening experience because when it happened to me, I was driving my car down Sunset Boulevard and I looked over at the source restaurant and Jim Baker was standing in the doorway of the restaurant and he had a shawl on. So it was 11 o'clock at night or 1130 at night. And we were going to go to the New Year's Eve uh, yoga class at Yogi Bhajan. So I came there to pick him up 
And uh, I got out of the car, I walked up to him, and he was standing there, and he had his eyes rolled up in his head, you know, in a meditation kind of posture. And uh, I thought he was weaving a little bit, and I thought he was going to fall over, so I reached up and touched him. And when I touched him, my kundalini shot up my spine, wow. and I became completely illumined right there at that very spot. Now, we're, we're standing at the, in the doorway of the Source restaurant at 11.30 at night, on Sunset Boulevard, there is cars honking, people throwing eggs, wall-to-wall uh, -wall people, just an absolute gotcha. uh, incredible amount of stuff going on. And when my kundalini went up, that all disappeared. I couldn't see any of it, none of it. The first thing was a flash of light like the like an, uh, a nuclear bomb went off, and I was very scared, so I turned around and I grabbed Jim Baker, and I put my arms around his chest and he was a big man and he stood there and he was and he started laughing and the laughter sounded like thunder rolling through the heavens just thunder and and I turned around and I looked and I opened my eyes and all I saw was clouds everywhere and angels and music of the of the angelic spheres and I mean I'm standing here on Sunset Boulevard and it is blasting with noise and uh, we're 20 foot away from the street, and I didn't hear any of it. And I stayed in that uh, illumination for about three days. They had to kind of lead me around. And, uh, you know, it was, it was higher and more pure and cleaner than any amount of drugs I ever took. So at that point, yes, sir. Uh, I was pretty much convinced that this man was going to lead me to the promised land. And... Uh, so I was working at the restaurant when we went out to dinner one night and me and him and his wife were sitting at dinner and I looked across the table and I swear to you, I saw Jesus Christ and Mary sitting across the table. And all of a sudden I went, I had been absolutely transposed to the most spiritual awakening and he was just sitting there eating and then he, he looked up at me and he said, well, he said, what do you think we ought to do about it? I didn't say anything to him or anything. He was reading my mind, and he knew that I looked at him, and I saw what I saw. And he says, what do you think we ought to do about it? And I said, well, why don't we close up the source restaurant on Sundays and uh, move out all the tables and chairs and start holding meditation on Sunday morning? And so we did. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the family and the whole um, Yehoah uh, 13 and all of it started right then. And uh, about three or four weeks into these classes, we had lots of people coming. And he would give the classes, and he was just absolutely mind-blowing. The spiritual awareness that was just flowing from him was, it was powerful. It was radical. It was not, okay, let's everybody sit into meditation, and we meditate now for an hour, and then you go home. Nothing like that. It was wild. And then as things began to progress, he realized that this was the beginning of uh, something new. There was new consciousness coming through. Uh, there was, uh, so we determined it was more like a family than anything else. And so uh, the restaurant was named The Source. And from there, we, of course, adopted the name The Source Family. And as people just kept coming and coming and joining and working at the restaurant, <coughs> Uh, and the classes became more and more serious, we decided we were going to get a big house and all live together. And so we found this 35-bedroom uh, mansion in Griffith Park, and uh, we leased that. 
and we all moved in there. And at that time, there was about 60 or 80 people living in this mansion, unbelievable wow. mansion. Uh, so I went through the whole place and I gold leafed all of the, our, everything. It was just a beautiful place. I mean, it was a temple when you went in there. So that's how it started. And more and more people came. And when you came and you decided you were going to stay and you saw him as your leader, uh, for a better term, which eventually became father. If you have a family, you have a father and a mother. So this was a family. So he became the father. And then things really started pr to, to proceed. But, uh, yeah, so when you came in, you immediately gave up your name. You didn't have a name because the whole thinking processes were to be born again. You didn't, you know, that's why you were there, right. to be born again. Like me, I was, when I saw that Kundalini, I was born again. So, uh, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, that's what you do. You gave up your name and you got a new name. And that's how I got the name Sunflower. I had a few names before Sunflower, but, you know, that was a different little levels of incarnation. But it turned and, out I wound and up Sunflower was Sunflower. really important. And Sunflower was really important in, in the source restaurant menu and, 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 and in the, uh, the philosophy, part of the nutritional philosophy. So it's like a beautiful oh, flower absolutely. and it's also a power name. It's like a, a big nutrient. Right. Uh, has, Sunflower has a lot of seed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so, well, let me see. I mean, there's so many stories that uh, it's it's hard not to digress. But, um, well, can, we about, can we talk about, can we talk about, um, the, can we talk about the, the source restaurant and kind of Jim Baker's connection, if you have, know about to the Nature Boys and the Nature Boy movement that was going on? Yeah. Well, See, that was the first real movement. The Nature Boys were early. I think they were in the 50s at some point in the early 60s. But yeah. the Nature Boys, uh, they were all about vegetarianism and and muscle building. And, you know, they were all the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the day. And uh, so he had a lot of that philosophy because we did a lot of exercising and uh, they were complete vegetarians and we were complete vegetarians. And we eventually got to a point where we did not eat any thing that was cooked even if it was cut right. and put into a bowl it had to be eaten within about 15 minutes or it just didn't have any more life wow. force so we had this we had this restaurant supporting us and the philosophy came from jim baker who later became father yod uh, you know uh, and because everybody got a new name so uh yep that was the philosophy of the source restaurant. And this was the first vegetarian restaurant in Hollywood. And we, uh, we had all raw foods. Uh, we did have some soup and some coffee and, uh, ice cream and stuff, but it was all made there. <coughs> and, uh, that was our philosophy, complete vegetarianism. Now we had, uh, Movie stars, we had John Lennon come in several times and he would sit in the parking lot in his limousine and him and Yoko would sit out there and we would deliver the food to their limousine. Because, uh, you know, he, he just nice. couldn't very well come into the restaurant or it would have been a, like a bomb going yeah. off. But uh, uh, yeah. so that's what we stood for. And then we evolved, you know, things started to evolve with uh, the restaurant pretty much stayed the way it was from beginning to end. We never changed the menu or anything. And we seated 65 people. 
And it was a very uh, spiritual place to go into because er everybody in the family wore white robes. And uh, so you go in there and you got waited on by these beautiful, beautiful people with long hair, all dressed in white robes. And the atmosphere inside that restaurant was so incredibly warm and spiritual that it was an experience to go there. We had lots of movie stars and everybody would come there because uh, it was such a great, great, warm experience. And uh, we never preached anything about who we were or what we were about. If you wanted to know, then you were invited to come to one of our morning um, get-togethers. So that's pretty much it for the restaurant. Now, that restaurant supported everybody. Nobody took us any money. We were all a family, so all the money went into supporting us and supporting our children. We had over 55 children born in that family. All natural childbirth. Wow! So that was a lot wow. to support. Over two hundred people and fifty-five children born. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Well, that's kind and of the five-minute tour run? of the source restaurant. Uh, and, we and had it for six and a half years. Okay. Well, it, we sold it, and then you started and doing it stayed the the source restaurant. Oh, okay. And it oh. stayed as the source restaurant for probably another 10 or 12 years. But it wasn't the same because you didn't have oh, wow. beautiful people ru running around in white, in white robes, you know. So then it got it, sold it and it became some kind of a tequila Mexican, Mexican restaurant with uh, famous for tequila. So, you know, I, I did oh. Oh. frequent the place a couple of times later on, but it was, certainly wasn't the same. Oh, nice. No, no. What a trip. What a beautiful moment. And then, so in the formation of the Source and the Source family is when you started to do uh, the band project, or that was just kind of a... Yes. Uh, was that just kind of an outgrowth of the meetings? Well, since I had joined up with Jim Baker at the time and Father Yode, uh, I was there about three or four months, and I had just come off the road, and I really missed playing music. There was no music. I mean, I went from touring with all of these great bands and these huge concerts, 40, 50,000 people at the time was a lot. And I go in there and I'm washing dishes and, you know, hanging out doing nothing. And I said, so, uh, I, I said, uh, father, father, yo, I have to leave. I can't stay here. I said, there's no music here. And he said, well, just be patient. There's musicians are coming. Musicians are coming. So I said, no, I, I have to leave. So I did, I left and I went back and I joined the band that I was in. And we signed a recording contract with A&M Records, and we were rehearsing on the A&M cool. soundstage. Yeah, because you know we were a pretty famous band, and we we were going to put it all back together again. So one night I'm driving down Sunset, and it was stormy. I mean, this there was a storm in Hollywood that was blowing over all the billboards. It was absolutely huge, and so I was driving by the source, and I saw a light on inside the restaurant. So I thought, okay, I'm going to just pull in here for a while and see if this storm uh, slows down. It, it wasn't a rainstorm, just wind, wind blowing like hell. And uh, so I get out of my car and went up to the front door and it was open a crack. And I went in there and Father Yod was standing in the center of the room and he was spinning around in circles, spinning and spinning. And uh, he was the vortex of this storm that was going on. And I don't know... You know, he was, he always liked to uh, 
seize the moment. So I don't know if he actually created the storm or if he was just enjoying it. But to me, he had created it. And I wound up there in the room. And it was so magical that I just went over against the wall. Didn't interrupt anything. And I sat there for about 45 minutes just watching him uh, speaking with the with the angels and, uh, you know, in tongues and everything else. And, uh, so that was, was one of the experiences. What, what were we talking about? Uh, that led to that. Uh, Oh, the formation of Yehovah 13. So you, you said that you had, uh, you had gotten back with your guys and, and you were rehearsing on the A&M soundstage. Yeah. So at that point, I really realized that, man, I needed to be here at the source restaurant. I didn't need to be going back out and doing more drugs and being on the road and trashing myself out. So I went back and quit the band <laughs> again. <laughs> and they said, well, we're, on, we're rehearsing with A&M on the soundstage. You can't quit the band. I said, don't oh, worry. You'll find somebody else. Right. So uh, oh. I went back and that was it. I, I'm still friends with these guys today and we still play music together, but that oh, cool. was it for that band. And uh, we, uh, so I went back. Then, about three weeks later, uh, one of the guys that shows up and decides he wants to join in uh, is a drummer. Oh, now I got a drummer. Oh, sweet. Another week later, That's a guitar a player shows up. Then, then about a month later, we had musicians. Everybody was a musician. And he looks at me like, you know, I nice. told you. So I said, okay. So this drummer turned out to be the best drummer I have ever played with in my life. Uh, just phenomenal wow. timing, everything. And he can play anything and all of that. So we put together the- What was uh, his name? At one point in our own, huh? What was his name? Oh, the drummer? Uh, his name is Octavius. Octavius, yeah. The, drum, the drummer was Octavius. Nice. So nice. we put together a recording studio uh, in the garage of our home at the time. And we started, we had, at one point, we had 11 musicians in there. We had a, a grand piano. We had a full Hammond organ. We had everything that you could possibly buy at the time in the state-of-the-art amplifiers and musical equipment. But at the time, all they had was... nice. Four track TX. So we recorded all that Yahoo 13 stuff on a TX four track with no over, no overdubs, wow. and every bit of it was spontaneous with microphones around nice. the room, and that's it. So the the quality nice. is not studio superb, but it caught the moment. What it did was it caught the spontaneity. Yes. And uh, yep. uh, Father said that we will never play songs. He said, we, we are going to be spontaneous, for that's where the highest degree of the music is, to make it up as you go. You know, everybody yeah. knows how to jam, yeah. but generally it always sounds the yeah. same. Your three chords or your E to B or whatever kind of jams. Yeah. But this stuff with the 13, it went anywhere that you could possibly let it go. And at one point, uh, we had, uh, like I say, 11 instruments in that room and father on the kettle drum, and we just let it roll. We would get up in the morning at 3.30, take a cold shower. Four o'clock, we would all be sitting down in the big living room of the house, 
And then father would come down from his room upstairs and sit in a chair and things would start. Now, it wasn't like a meditation, like you would say, oh, we sat there and meditated and breathed. This was more like a party that you could not believe. But it was a spiritual party. It was, it was everything that you wanted to know about how to live as a conscious being, but we were living it, you know, and we had 200 people in that house. Uh, so you'd have 150 people sitting together in this room every morning. And I got to tell you one story that wow. uh, went on one morning because this is, is one of the funniest. So we had the restaurant up for sale because we wanted to uh, move to Hawaii. So the okay. head of the Hare Krishna organization from the, um, from the Midwest on out to the West Coast, that whole half of the United States was this guy was the head of Hare Krishna temples. So him and his buddy came in their traditional Hare Krishna garb with their ponytails and all. And we believed in him and being the way God created you. Let your hair go. Let your beard go. Let all. You don't need some ponytail to say, hey, I'm God. So uh, yeah. we were sitting there for about a half an hour and things were going on. And we were going back and forth and laughing. And Father was creating his, his laughter and joy as he usually did. And he looked over at those guys and he said, oh, he said, oh, by the way, I forgot. You guys came here so that we could discuss you buying the restaurant. And the guy said, if we were going to buy that restaurant from you, we'd much rather kick you in the face. And he didn't hear them. And he said, what did they say? And I, wow, Harry Krishna guy said that. I said, screamed it really loud. I said, he wants to kick you in the face. And father stood up out of the chair and went, oh, yeah. He says, well, come on. And he was six foot six. He was a, a karate instructor oh, in the oh, Marine really? Theaters. And these oh, two guys, shoot, okay, these two guys stood up and ran for the door. Ran for the door. And he and he he's stepping through people trying to get across the room. And he's going, "Come back here, you oh. chicken shits! Where are you going?" They ran out. They got in their car, <laughs> rolled, wheels, locked the fucking doors, and hauled ass. Now these are. Isn't that a great story? I mean, we are That's laughing hilarious. our heads off. Oh. And uh, this was only one morning. Every single morning was similar. Shit was going on. It was just too much fun. So how could these people who claim to know God, you want to know God, you come to us, we'll show you God. And they got up and ran like a couple of chicken shits. You know, fear. Trippy. Just, yeah, very much so. Yeah. If you're a man of God, you well, have no fear. They, they're more into the, uh, you know, the Hare Krishnas. A long time ago when I was uh, into the Grateful Dead, I came close to joining the Hare Krishnas. But I, it's tough for me to be a joiner. And, and when you see the spirituality devolving into an, an organized dress code and, and, and the rules that they have and then the rule sets and the hierarchies, yeah. that's when I just peace out. So I totally agree. I, I yeah. really like Krishna consciousness. I love the Bhagavad Gita. I even support yeah, the Hare Krishnas from afar, but it's like, Yeah. That, that's what we all did. We went through lots of various uh, different spiritual paths to try and find out which ones were really right. uh, hit the center of your being. And so many of them just missed the mark, missed the mark. Even Yogi Bhajan, he missed yeah. the mark terribly. Uh, I, when I was with him, he said to me one day, he said, Patrick, uh, 
what do you want to do? He said, you want to hang out here at the Whiskey A Go-Go the rest of your life? I said, no, not really. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put everything you own into your little camper there and uh, drive to Tucson, Arizona. And he says, when you get to Tucson, Arizona, everything will be shown to you. So I did. I left the next morning. I got to Tucson, Arizona about two in the afternoon. I went around and I grabbed my uh, sheepskin and my sitar. And I went and sat out in the park. Nice. And I got my eyes closed for 20 minutes playing my sitar. And I open up my eyes, and there's two people sitting in front of me in full lotus. Just appeared, and I didn't even know they were there. So I got to talk, and I said, well, what do you want to do? They said, well, we would love to learn yoga. And I said, okay, come back at 4 o'clock. And they came back with four people with them. So my very wow. first day nice. at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm giving my first yoga class. I'm teaching four people nice. yoga. So... Nice. I said, okay, meet me here tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, we'll have another class. They come back, and there's, next thing you know, there was 80 people. Within two weeks, there was 80 people a day, twice a day, would come to my wow. classes in the park. And it just wow. put some money in my food bowl, and that was it. So I opened up an ashram, and a bunch of us lived at the ashram, and we held all these classes, and I taught kundalini yoga. So when it nice. came time for me to leave, I wanted to go back to L.A., I called the yogi and I said, look, I, I want you to send somebody to take my place. I said, I've got an ashram for you. Everything's going good. You've got about 80 followers here that love the teachings to death. But I said, I need to leave. He said, oh, he says, you cannot leave. He says, no way. He says, Patrick, if you leave, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be started laying all this cursing on me. Like, Oh, no. You know, if I... God. I left, I was going to be cursed the rest of my life. And uh, I mean, that oh, to me Jesus. was like, thank God I got out of there because yeah. this is what happened with a lot of these teachings and these teachers that came over. They came over predominantly because they had a 10 cents worth of truth and they wanted to make their millions and go back to India and live in a, a palace. So that's why they were all here. Gotcha. They weren't here to teach you anything, to tell you the truth. Maharishi and all of them, of they just had this, yeah. a lot of huckster in there and a shuckster is what it was. So when we, uh, when I finally met Jim Baker and we decided to leave the yogi and all of that stuff and not, not go there anymore, and he started teaching on his own, well, this whole new level of truth started come, being generated and come through. And it was more in keeping with the 60s because, you know, we were hip. We were all hippies, man, and we found a way to to weave God into it. Now, for example, uh, Yogi Bhajan, one of his teachings that was required was that you have no you have no sex. You become a celibate. That's it. You you can be married. Ooh. You can have a partner. You can do anything, but you cannot have sex. So. Here's all these people running around lying about it. Uh, we're not having sex, but they're sneaking around. Then it turns out Yogi Bhajan himself was right. sneaking around with half of them, having sex, and then preaching one thing and teaching another. So in the source, oh, snap. we found a way that you could, you could have, if you have 50 men and 50 women in a room, the sparks are going to fly. So we figured out a way that yeah. you could have sex with whoever you wanted to have sex with, 
and we had special rooms that were, where you would go, and we called it uh, Dianism, and we had certain uh, teachings that went along with it. First of all, the men did not pursue the women. If you were caught chasing right. around a woman trying to figure that one out, you, uh, you would get chastised yeah. terribly in front of everyone. In the morning, you would be the bad boy, and people would be spitting on you practically. Oh, no, he did what? Wow. So uh, if you could give it up and you saw those beautiful women you wanted and everything else, all you had to do was just give it up and wait a little bit. And pretty soon they would choose you and they would let you know, yeah, I want to have sex with you. But it was a different yes. kind of sex, too. So we were allowed to have sex and as much as you wanted. Uh, we had only one rule. Yes, that's beautiful. And this is the true this is the true celibacy. The only rule was that the man had to retain his semen, was not supposed to have an orgasm and lose his semen. So that's gotcha. the way it worked. Well, it's one of the reasons. Yeah, like the Taoist, the Taoist thought on on semen preservation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the true. That's the true um, meaning of the word celibate. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that yeah. sounds really cool. And it really sounds like a, a more workable system as far as like human sexuality goes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know, I you mean, looked at the people that I like that it's you looked at female the agency is what's really, Oh, sorry. Well, you looked at the people that were following the yogi and they were all celibates and they were all walking around and they had no life force. They had nothing. They were like tin soldiers. Right. They were all dull. They didn't have any, any right. glow in their cheeks. They didn't, you know, it was it was amazing to you know put put one next to the other. You could sure tell something was going on. So it's right. it, it's it's a nat <laughs> it's a natural thing. But if you abuse yes. it like anything else, it'll bring you down. So this is why we had our certain Agreed. kinds of rules, and the women felt safe because there there wasn't always some guy hitting on them that they didn't want to be with. That never yeah. happened. Perfect. Never. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. That's really excellent, and it's the way it, it really should be. And I mean, I've seen that just from my life, and also from going to different psychedelic parties. At parties where women feel safe and comfortable and protected, those are always yeah. the most fun. They're they're and they're not the yeah. most fun because they turn into an orgy. They're, they're just the most spontaneously fun. And when women don't feel safe and protected, and their agency is not respected, then it's not a good time for me, especially. Right. Well, a lot of that so was I like really that, true about. I like that you were leading in that. Well, yeah, that, and before that, it was, of course, the hippies. A lot of a lot of that whole freedom began with the hippies because I remember lots of love-ins that we played, uh, five, six, seven, eight thousand people, and all the women were topless. They didn't get raped. They didn't get nice. pursued. They didn't get yeah. held down and be, and you know uh, groped. None of that. Yeah. And uh, so those days were different, you know, things were a little different and it was more innocent. And then as you know, the, yeah. the so this is part of why the women felt with that way, because they felt safe. They knew they weren't going to get, you know, raped yes, and groped and everything else. And maybe if they did, they liked it. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't like uh, if you see a woman walking down the street today with her top off, she's going to get beaten and raped in about 10 minutes, you know, so. Yeah, there are Whatever. horrible possibilities for sure. Yeah. yeah so well, the good news too is that there's 
there's there's a bunch of psychedelic festivals out here on the west coast that are really protecting and preserving that vibe of of females being prote- protected and rigorous consent culture and creating environments where women can be you know sensually or sexually expressive and not face negative consequences there you go yeah we really work towards that well it's, yeah. it's good to see it coming back and i think there's a new um generation so to speak that really appreciates that as a way of life and you know uh the rest of the world is in big trouble for lots of reasons but you know mostly because men are being idiots and women don't like it i agree i agree yes so also uh along that lines you know in that family the women were so secure uh, that if and, and the men were on lots of different levels of enlightenment. So some of them were very enlightened and some of them were still stuck in old patterns. And the ones that were very enlightened, gotcha. of course, uh, uh, attracted the women. So, you know, right. uh, the enlightened ones, such as, of course, myself, we would have lots of women. <laughs> and that was also nice, permissible. So I, there were many a times when I had as many as six women, six, seven women. Nice. Uh, you know, nice. And, and nice. what that meant was they didn't go to any other man. They were my, they fixed my food. They brushed my hair. They cleaned my clothes. They made my bed. They did all that kind of stuff for me. And they, and they never had any jealousy nice. because we, uh, the way that we had intimacy with the women was that we never had orgies, even though I had six wives. I was only with one at a time. Now that makes a woman gotcha. secure. And other women might gotcha. be, you know, able to witness or be close by or working in the next room or whatever. There was not any, never any sneaking around. And that made them feel uh, secure that they know that when they're with me, they're going to get my full attention. They're not going to be sharing my lust and all of that with uh, other people. So, you know. Gotcha. What? Me? That's I, cool. I certainly wasn't cool. worried about it. I wasn't, I wasn't concerned. <laughs> Very happy. <laughs> it was working out. Playing some rock music, living in a crazy huge mansion, and uh, just having a great yeah. time with it. What? What? Uh, so... <laughs> I was also wondering, were you guys well connected with the Brotherhood or was your guys' move out to Hawaii in any part spurred by a lot of those guys moving out there at the same time or it was just kind no. of another, it was another scene that no, was as, starting to come up or, or what's the story with that? As a matter of fact, we were very much uh, doing our own thing. We, of course, were all living together in a very closed environment. Uh, people from the outside weren't really allowed to come in and spend the night wandering around or anything oh, okay. unless you, you know, had been okay. um, vetted. So th- that saved a lot gotcha. of problems. Then, um, you know, what, were we, what, were, what was the question? Huh? The brotherhood. Oh, the brothers. No, no, we were pretty much we were pretty much onto our onto our own thing, and we didn't interact gotcha. with any of the other. Uh, uh, religious uh, spiritual groups at the time because honestly father yod and Yehovah was if you ever wanted i mean if you died and went to heaven and you wanted to go before god and you 
wanted him to look like God, he would look exactly like Jim Baker. That's how much he looked like God. He acted like God and everything else. And everybody else was just fell into a, a, a little bit different category of, of, you know, understanding about, about that. So a lot of the spiritual uh, groups had trouble getting introduced to him because he was too powerful. He, um, well, the, the main thing that he wanted to do is he wanted to be recognized because if you could recognize him as being truly, truly spiritually aware above and beyond, which he was, most everybody else, then there was an ego conflict. You know, no, uh, you, you're no different than I am. Well, believe me, this man was different than all of them. So uh, he didn't have wow. to promote that, but he just was. He, he was just head and shoulders above uh, the rest. Everybody else had some kind of, you know, question marks surrounding them. So gotcha. that's my story. Well, to be really that's what I got more, out of it for seven years. Yeah. Well, he seemed to be living in a more spontaneous and permissive way, in, in a positive way, than most even emerging kind of newer religious faiths that were coming out in the 60s. They They really got into dogma, a lot of them quick, and it seems like, this was more about enabling yeah. freedom of the individuals involved for the most part. Well, that, it was also about, about finding right? that freedom truly, because when you truly find that freedom, there's no reason to pretend you're anything else. Uh, and, right. and, um, I have some trains of thoughts, but they come and go, uh, what were we talking about? Jim Baker. What about, oh, did it get there we go. <laughs> oh, well, so anyway, yeah. So what it was all really about was the, the consciousness that we were trying to achieve was to get rid of the, the ego. Now you have two different kinds of egos. You have a, a false ego and a genuine, positive, healthy ego and an unhealthy ego. Now what you want to do is okay. be able to determine the difference between the unhealthy ego and the healthy ego. Like, if I didn't have a healthy ego, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you all my story. You know what I mean? I can deliver with an ego about it, but it's a healthy ego. And I don't, you know, have this yeah. ego like I'm better than anybody else or anything else. Uh, and that is what we were trying to do mostly, to have that healthy ego, be happy, be, be uh, uh, you know, present yourself well, but not with this negative ego that, Anybody who's any kind of enlightenment can spot that ego, and it's like uh, it makes makes you like kind of nauseous, you know, to be around that kind of person. Not me, but <laughs> agreed. I can totally no, I dig it. I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what uh, what year about did you guys move to Hawaii? And what was the was there just you uh, you wanted to just kind of change scenes, or what was the the impetus behind all that? Well, we want we wanted to get out. We wanted to get out of Los Angeles, uh, and we wanted to live on a farm, and plant, and have food, and do all that stuff, and live that life. So we found a fourteen-acre piece of land on Kauai, and uh, one by one we all moved over there, and moved into this moved into this piece of land, and. Uh, Pretty soon the locals, they didn't, they took a disliking to us, you know, because we were wearing white robes and, you know, we were kind of out of 
step with freaking the local out community there because you know locals yeah yeah freaking them out yeah and and the, the mayor came to one of our morning oh conservative and very uh, extremely hostile on Kauai. at the time wow. the local people were yeah just the epitome of hostility what year was this so we made a big mistake this was uh 1974 so we made a big mistake okay in going there to start with. Uh, but, um, so we moved from there, we moved to San Francisco and it didn't work out in San Francisco. And then we moved around a lot. Oh, wait, you we moved were, from, uh, wait, you moved from, from Hawaii back to San Francisco? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I didn't then, know that. Um, okay. We, yes. And then we rented a, uh, another 35 bedroom Victorian mansion. Uh, one of the ones that had made it through the, the uh, earthquake and fire. And it was just such a wonderful, beautiful house. It was perfect for us. We put a recording studio downstairs and, uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's where we lived in San Francisco for a while. But the problem was wow. we had run out of money and no, nobody could make any money. It was hard to make money. Oh. Uh, so, we eventually decided we were going to move back to Hawaii from San Francisco. We, we just wanted to be in Hawaii on a nice okay. farm somewhere, not, yeah. you know, downtown San Francisco. Right. And so yeah. uh, at one point we had all of our, our belongings. Everybody had one box. That's all you own. Box and a bedroll. That's all you owned and a robe. So oh. we had all of our belongings oh. in a U-Haul truck and we were wandering around over 200 of us in a big, pack all wearing white robes all through San Francisco. We had no place to go. And uh, so oh no, we, came, we went to a church. We were passing by a church one day and the pastor said, who are you? What are you doing? And I mean, we were obviously a sight to be seen. So we, we told him, he says, oh, well, welcome to my church. You can stay here in the church. So we stayed in the church two days. Two wow. days later, he threw us out. Absolutely okay. came in. This was the pastor came in <laughs> screaming and yelling. Get out, out. You cannot stay here anymore. All we did was bed down and, you know, went out looking for work. So we, we wound up and we had, at the time, we had three babies delivered while we were just wandering around and uh, natural wow. childbirth in the park or wherever. And uh, so that had to stop. So we uh, made arrangements to come back to Hawaii and um, rented a the big house in Hilo, a great big house in Hilo uh, on the big island. So we stayed away from Kauai because we knew we weren't welcome there. You know, they had put article in the newspaper that the person that wrote the article for the newspaper said that she went to one of our morning meditations and that we beat women and burn babies. Oh, God. Yeah. In the Jeez. front page of the newspaper. From that point on, we were oh, we no. had yeah. we, we had guns pointed at us. Uh, I mean, it was time to get out of there. It was not good. Oh man, very small island. Okay. So anyway, yeah. uh, then we went back to the big island, and we were met with a lot more, um, or a lot less hostility and more freedom. And um, one of the brothers named Mercury was a hang glider, and he had three hang gliders, and so he wanted to go hang gliding. Uh, on the Makapu Cliffs in Oahu, Hawaii, on uh, okay. 
on the lawn. So he went, and Father went with him to go watch him, and they got a, um, he wound up liking where they were. They were in Lanakai, Hawaii, and he met, you know, a couple of other new brothers, and uh, we, uh, him and his women at the time moved into this house with um, this one of the new brothers who um, he named Jupiter, and uh, they did a lot of hang gliding. So that was how the whole hang gliding thing got started. Was that uh, okay? You know, so that's the kind of the tail end of the story. I don't know how much farther you want to go, but you can just keep asking questions. <laughs> Well, so I, I, you know, I know that he passed away hang gliding. That's a, a horrible tragedy. Um, I don't want to have to go through, you know, that, that that's pretty much self-evident what happened. But uh, did that, yeah. what happened really within the Source family uh, and, and yourself? And where, you know, what was that trajectory after after that moment? Uh, well, we were in two groups. One of the groups were, were on Oahu and the other group was on uh, the Big Island of Hawaii. And of course, uh, when you join the family, you uh, got a new name, and you also, instead of a name, you got a number. So everybody got a number. And my number was number one. Okay. And uh, it went all the way down the line to two, 300 numbers. But I was number one, so it was kind of looked at like I should step up to take over everything. Gotcha. So... I didn't really want to do that. After seven years of living that life, I was ready to move on. And because uh, okay. I found out how hard it was to do with that, with all of those people and all of those children and all of those nursing mothers. And all, I mean, there was probably 15 or 18 women that were nursing babies and there was 50 children and, you know, 175 people. And it takes a lot of money to run that. So right. I uh, decided I just wanted to move on with my life and start something new. So I had a business there. I sold the gotcha. business and moved on. But uh, I was head of that, uh, kept everything together for about a year after he passed on. We all moved over to the uh, island of Oahu and got two houses in a place called Lanakai. And it was all white sand beaches, okay. and it was just incredibly wonderful. Nice. You know, wow. what a great life. It must have been. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when you That's spend really seven years, when you spend seven years doing something like that, it's it's got to be real and it's got to be truthful or it becomes evident that it's a lie and nobody wants to really, nobody really wants to live a lie. So we kept it as truthful yes. as we could. And believe me, the women wow. were the ones who made most of the decisions. That's that's beautiful. It it really makes for a, a much more rightly oriented society, I think, when women are in charge. Yeah, maternal you know, system. They have better good. priorities. They know us a lot better than we know them, that's for sure. <laughs> you know? Hallelujah to that, right? Right. Yeah, we just gotta focus one, on ourselves. I think you really said it too. It's like Oh, just say we should focus this on ourselves one of the reasons why as men. Folk yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. We got a lot. No, I was just going to say this is one of the reasons why all the women love me. Because I know they know me better than I know me, so I stay on my toes. I'm just kidding, <laughs> of course, you know. 
No, I know. It's all good humor. It's all good humor. It's really and so you moved from uh, Oahu over to the Big Island sometime uh, after that. Then, uh, no, actually, I moved from Oahu, came back to Los Angeles, and this was in about 1977. And I came back to Los Angeles. Wow! And all as of I'm that flying in on an airplane. All of that in such a short time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, all of it in a real short time. So as I'm flying into Los Angeles, you know, I looked down there and I said, you know, every person in that city has a hundred dollar bill in their pocket and I'm going to find out a way to get it. <laughs> and so I did. Okay. Okay. I did a lot of things that, you know, I'm completely proud of completely and made a whole bunch of nice. money. Awesome. <laughs> and it That's made awesome. life was a lot easier music or, to have or... the money. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, no, I actually, I got back together with the same band again, seven years later. The one that we rehearsed on wow. AM soundstage. We got back together with them and uh, we played a lot. Uh, and I, I went into construction when I got back there to Los Angeles. So I didn't have anything. I had one change of clothes and one pair of shoes. And my mother had a row of um, duplex apartments. You know what those are, little houses with two houses in one house. Yes. yes. She had a bunch of those. And so yep. she said, well, here, move into one of these. And I, I moved into one. I had a blanket and a pillow and one change of clothes. So I opened up the newspaper and it said, downtown hotel renovation needs finished carpenters. So I called. They said, come down tomorrow. I went down. I applied. They said, okay, show up tomorrow with your tools. And I left. And I realized, I don't have any tools. I don't have anything. <laughs> I don't have a car. Oh, no. So I went, to, I went to my mom's house, and I I borrowed a hammer and a screwdriver and a pair of pliers and, and borrowed her car, and I showed up the next day with that. So within, nice. this was a hotel that they were renovating, the Biltmore Hotel. And it was uh, mm -hmm. three stories of, three stories downstairs of uh, buy, buy and sell space and seven floors, 728 uh, hotel rooms that was being renovated. Okay. So I went to work there and it was total chaos. As a carpenter, I uh, uh, was making all of the decisions. There were 12 or 13 people that were in charge of running the show and nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew anything. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? But, and so I'm making all the decisions and everybody else is looking good for, because I, because they're claiming that they made the decisions. So I went to the boss and I said, you know, if something doesn't change, I said, I'm going back upstairs. I'm going to pack my tools. And he had heard about me and he says, okay, come with me. And he took me over to the office and he, uh, they took my picture and they gave me a new badge with my picture on it that said general superintendent. So this was about three months into my being there. And I went back and I started packing up my tools and my superintendent come up to me and says, Burke, he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm packing my tools. He said, oh, in other words, you want me to have your check ready for you, huh? I turned around and I was now his boss. He had to work for me now. And I said, you know, whoa. That sounds like a great idea, but if I were you, I wouldn't be foolish. And from then on, I had 12 superintendents working underneath me. And then within another month, they promoted me to project manager. So I managed it and put 
together wow. $140 million worth of construction in, in about wow. two and a half years. So, and I didn't know anything. That's I didn't cool. have, so then you I started didn't doing... have a screwdriver. <laughs> I just but can't. then you stayed in construction? I stayed in construction, yeah. And from then on, I got into a, working in Los Angeles doing historic renovation on doing renovation on historic buildings. And I got quite a name for myself. That's cool. And at the, at the end of my stay in LA, I just wanted to move back to Hawaii. So I was ready to go. I had land and everything else. And, uh, they called me up and they, I was renovating at the time, a Frank Lloyd Wright house on Hollywood Boulevard. It was called the Holly Huck house. And uh, Frank Lloyd Wright had built it. So we were tore it all apart and built a steel cage in it and then put it back together. So I was managing that and I got a phone call and they said, uh, we're very, very much interested in hiring you away from the project you're on. We want you to manage the renovation of the, um, uh, Griffith park observatory. You know, the one that was in the James wow. Dean film and all yeah. that. This yeah. was a, you know, I lived in LA for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted me to manage that project. That's so amazing. I said, okay, I'll take a look at it. Okay. And I looked at it and what they were, what they were going to do is they were going to shore up the existing building, tear everything out of it, all the telescopes and everything, strip it down to the core, jack it up, uh, dig a hole three stories deep beneath it and put three floors down beneath it and then put it all back together so that wow. you couldn't tell anything had been wow. done. But they would have three floors underneath it. So I looked wow. at that and I said, you know, it just looks like more work than I want to commit to. And I didn't take the job. But that's the point I had, okay. I had gotten to, you know, making a name for myself. We're starting off with a screwdriver yeah, really and a pair cool. of lights. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's excellent. That's really <laughs> cool. So do you, how do you, do you, uh, how do I want to say this? Does your, and, and can you share how your time with Jim Baker and, and the source family informs your days today. Are you still on the involved in the daily meditations and, and that type of a, of a thing in the daily basis? Well, you know, this whole thing about doing something to become illumined is a lot of work. Right. And if you become right. illumined like I did, and I'm telling you, I sat in that light and talked with the angels for three days you know, and people led me around, uh, that's illumination. That's true illumination. And when you achieve that, you don't need to do anything anymore. I mean, sure. It, you have a, a nice meditation or you have this or you do that or you, but you just don't search for that truth anymore. I mean, you don't search for that. You just become it more. You live it more. In everything that you do. So nice. I, I do get up and I meditate sometimes at four in the morning and it's just delightful. You know, you can breathe and you can feel that, awesome. feel that prana just filling you up and all of that. But it, it really doesn't change my life in one direction or another. Women are still a mystery. Yes, sir. They always will be. <laughs> well, you, always will be. Yeah, we're going to hand that one down. If there was some way to understand uh, women, I'd meditate all day. <laughs> oh my god and do you still play music on the regular 
I do. I do. Not enough. Awesome. Awesome. Never. Have you have you had a chance to jam with Adam yet? Do you guys play? On occasion. He's too good for me. Awesome. Awesome. He knows too I many love songs. Playing music with Adam. So Adam to me is like uh in music, I, it's okay if he's there, you can hear this. But anyway, in music, Adam is to me kind of like Father Yod, where he's got like a musical dharma where you assemble people around him and he's just, he's not just so good, he's just so stoked on everyone and the music that we all get better. Yeah. And so I just really appreciate him for that. Absolutely. I just want to sneak that in there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, me and I, I, he and I have played out several times, you know, at my son's bar a few times and we always make, the rest of the people that we play with sound really good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's so true. That's great. Oh my God. Anyway, um, Patrick, brother Sunflower, I'm really humbly thankful for this. And, uh, it's just such a fortuitous and fortunate moment, uh, for myself and for anyone who is interested in the source family and, and getting a more human side of the story beyond, you know, just the, the surface, because it really remains a, it remains kind of an enigma to the greater public and even folks like myself who really pour over California psychedelic history. It sounds like such a potent and positive moment. Well, I mean, what, what I feel like we did, we just scratched the surface of a lot of subjects and topics and stories today, uh, which is really, I thank you very much for that because this is where I really come to life and I have the most fun. Other than that, I like everybody else. I work on my garden and my farm, but uh, I I love to uh, share these things, and you know it's very much different cycle of life today. But I see a lot of people coming back around to this, wanting to know about these kinds of things, and we just kind of scratch the surface about what really went on and what kind of teachings we followed and uh, what we did to make sure that we maintain our health and all of that. That's another whole subject. So I'd be looking love forward to, to maybe coming I mean, back if you have, again and having another. Okay, I was going to say, if you have a few more minutes, we can go over some of that if you're feeling it. Like, we're really, we aren't limited. It's really up to how long you want to do this. So we can cut and try again, or, or we could just even dive in for a couple more minutes. I, I think we should cut and do it again, because I have a lot on my plate today, okay. and this Word. has been incredibly wonderful. But totally. I get things I'm really outside. thankful for you sharing you know, your time. I, uh, I'm thankful for you having me here. This is wonderful. I really, um, I really am enjoyed meeting you and having this discussion. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so you much, and uh, I'll just uh, I'll keep in touch with you through Adam. And thank you too, brother Adam. And then, uh, um, yes, uh, one thing I was going to say, Adam, is you want to watch when we turn this off. We want to keep the computers on. So that they okay. can uh, do their transcoding thing till they say they're done. Yeah, it's uploading. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Very Sweet. cool, man. Okay. okay. See you again. I really appreciate you doing this as well, Adam. Thanks, Brother Patrick. I love you guys. Have a great day. Very sure, man. Love you, man.